0: Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife
1: Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this
0: into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supply for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to this week's Bat Chat from the Bat Conservation Trust, bringing you the stories from the bat conservation movement. I'm Steve Rowe, and back in November, BCT hosted the second Woodland Symposium, six years after the inaugural symposium. It brought together landowners, ecologists, bat workers and professionals from the woodland and forestry industry to listen to talks from 15 speakers, covering research, knowledge updates and case studies on woodlands and bats. We hear from three of those speakers in this episode as well as from a couple of the 11 students who had been given a place at the conference by bursaries offered by the back from the Brink Project. Check out episode two for more on that. We start off with Gareth Fisher from the RSPB discussing the Woodland Wildlife Toolkit. And so Gareth can you introduce yourself to the listeners so what does your job entail how did you find yourself working at the RSPB?
1: Um, Okay, so um, hello, my name is uh, Gareth Fisher, and I'm an ecologist for the RSPB. Uh, The team that I work in provide ecological advice and support to our reserve staff, and also now to our off-reserve projects as well. Um, Within the team, I'm the lead on woodland habitats and species, um, and I'm also the chair of the RSPB's Woodland Nature Recovery Group, so I work with colleagues across the whole organisation whose focus is on woodlands. Um, and when i'm not in woodlands i spend a lot of time usually apart from obviously over the last few months in north wales because i I do a lot of work with the reserves team in north wales um i I came to work for the rspb actually it suddenly occurred to me there's 20 years ago um just over that i I did my first contract and that was a summer um project looking at um, lapwing over on in west wales and then uh, went back about two years after that, and had I think it was about two and a half, three years of sort of winter and summer contracts, um, pretty much across the whole of the uh, of Britain, um, which was excellent. And then uh, came to the ecology team in 2006, and I've been with them ever since.
0: Roughly, how big's the ecology team at RSPB? Then it's. It's about 20 people. So presumably they're not just doing birds, they, they are doing all aspects of ecology, are they?
1: Yeah, we, we look at everything, basically. Um, obviously, if you're going to have a good bird population, you fundamentally need a good ecosystem. So, you know, we, we advise on on priority species and we've got a whole load of priority species and, and uh, very important um, SSSI features, things like that, that cover... Um, invertebrates and plants and um, and obviously we have quite a lot of well I think we do have all of the UK's bat species on our reserves in, in one place or another we've got a couple that have pretty high numbers and sort of 90 percent of all the bat species that we have on them so we we have to take everything into account when we're, we're definitely not just a, a bird organization really we we do cover everything great stuff
0: so we've just heard you at, at today's part of the the woodland symposium talking about the woodland wildlife toolkit so can you just give us an introduction to it and what who who, who is involved in it
1: it was it basically came about um it was developed by a consortium of organisations, led initially by the RSPB, um, but also involving Back Conservation Trust, um, Butterfly Conservation, Forestry Commission, Natural England, Plant Life, uh, the Woodland Trust and the Silver Foundation. And it's, it's basically, it's an online resource for the conservation management of woodlands. There's a lot of information about different uh, woodland types, woodland species, and uh, their ecology and and everything that you need to know about them to be able to manage your woodlands appropriately. So it it really started about 10, uh, well, 11 years ago, actually, now. um, And it was initially a discussion um, between Forestry Commission down in the southwest and a colleague of mine, Helen Booker, Forestry Commission were interested in discussing woodland birds after the repeat woodland bird survey, which was published uh, a year or two before. Um, and then that conversation developed with another colleague of ours, um, Nigel Symes, but it still very much had a Southwest focus. And then other organisations, um, such as Butterfly Conservation, Bat Conservation Trust, all kind of joined in that conversation. And they were called basically came together and were called the Southwest Woodland Wildlife Initiative really aimed at trying to get more woodland management for declining species and then that evolved with the RSPB taking a bit of the lead and the idea for the toolkit then eventually emerged from those discussions and then following that the group decided that we really needed to broaden it out to a national remit um, to say repeating the efforts elsewhere so that it really was a, a, a sort of a, an overarching thing rather than each sort of region or whatever doing something slightly different and uh, Natural England and Forestry Commission funded the early stages and then we also brought in other experts for the other um, tax groups and the Silver Foundation um, were brought in to really help develop the, the website um, and uh, the RSPB and Woodland Trust sort of funded that part of it, um, and Silver look after the website for us. Um, and then, it, and so overall, it did. It took about a decade to go from the early discussions to the launch in early 2019.
0: And who's the toolkit for, and why would they use it? So
1: the toolkit is for pretty much anyone who's interested in woodland habitats, species, or well, and or managing. Um, their woodlands for wildlife um, and they would use it um, principally because it's it's just a really good one-stop shop for a huge amount of information um, on the on the woodland habitats on the species um their ecology the threats to them um, different management options as to how you can try and mitigate that um so but there, there is a, a huge amount of information in there
0: and how will that tool help landowners manage their own woodlands?
1: So it will help because they, if, if they don't really know their woodlands, um, it provides them with an opportunity to search the toolkit, find out what um, which of the priority species might be there. It doesn't definitely tell you that um, what is absolutely there, but it, it uses the data to find out what might be there, what they um, might need to think about, to make sure that they're not um, making things worse for those species, but hopefully how to actually proactively manage in a, in a positive manner um, and, and benefit those um, those rare species. It provides some downloadable information about their ecology, again, their threats and the management options. And the really good thing is, is that it provides an opportunity to have a look at all the different um, species that you might have and shows you how, Um, you can do management to benefit all of them so you're not literally just looking at one species alone it will show you which management options will benefit a lot um, of the of the things that might be present and which ones you might need to do more particular one um, sort of management interventions just for one species or the other so it does show you that synergy across the groups
0: and i mean i used the toolkit a few weeks ago and looked at woodlands near me so unsurprisingly looked at the bat bits so i know where the bat data comes from but where yeah. where does where do all the different bits of data come from and is there a risk yeah. that species could be missed given that it relies on the larger record centers um such as the national bat monitoring program rather than local record centers such as bat yeah. groups
1: yeah so the the um for quite a lot of the groups we got data directly from um, the the taxa specialist organisation. So yes, the bat conservation trust data comes uh, provided the data for the for um, the bat species, which came through as distribution polygons for each species. Um, the British Trust for Ornithology we used their two kilometre um, square tetrad summary data from the last bre- breeding bird atlas to um, to Get that information in for for all of the key species, and then butterfly conservation provided um, actual grid references buffered around by a two-kilometer square for both the butterflies and the moth species. So we are using national data as much as um, we, we can, um, and then and there's a whole load of other organisations that have provided information. We do get quite a lot from the um, NBN. I think realistically. Um, there is always a risk that we might be missing species, um, but we are basically working with the best information we possibly can. Um, it's always good to be able to go out uh, or get people out to go and actually have a look at, look at your woods and actually see what is actually there rather than just relying on the distribution data. Um, and we would hope that, you know, even with local recorders, that that would get fed into those um, those record centers to help boost that national picture as well. So um, as well as just getting more of an inf- more information, if you did could engage with your um, local back group to get that information, but if then if that could also be then fed into um, the, the the local, the national or regional and national um, record centers, then that all helps to build that picture and make sure that the data that we are using is up to date and as accurate as possible. And that is one of the things that we know that we are going to need to do going forward is to make sure that we are improving the, uh, the you know the, the timeliness or the, the the up-to-dateness of the data that's in there and where we can improve that resolution as well.
0: And I guess like you say, you've, you've been able to work with some record centres not giving you detailed grid references. So I guess if people are wanting to share data at a, a lower resolution, they could do that, I guess. Yes.
1: Yeah, Absolutely
0: great stuff so finally what's the long-term vision for the toolkit then
1: um so in the long run we're aiming to as i I said we're aiming to keep it up to date to make sure that it is um all the information there is is as up to date as possible, and that will include the data, the biological data when we get more surveys with all the research that's going on um, and obviously we've listened to quite a lot today on the various um, projects that um around bat work and research into that that's been amazing um, but where we are finding out that uh, more information, getting a clearer idea about which management interventions might work best for a particular species will update those management options and and all of that uh, side of things as well. Um, The key thing is to really try and promote it, get the message out there that this is available um, and encourage people to try it out, learn how to use it, give us feedback so that we can improve and refine things as, as best as possible. Um, and we are looking um, to develop a mobile app so that um, it's, it's even more accessible and that people could be out in the field and have this information actually with them whilst they're at, out and walking around.
0: Great stuff. We'll, um, we'll put a link to the toolkit on, on the show notes as well. Gareth, thank you very much. Okay. That's great. Thanks very much. You can check out the Woodland Wildlife Toolkit for yourself to discover what woodland wildlife lives near you. The link is in the show notes. So Morgan, you're Morgan Hughes, you're from Brumbats and you've you've been granted a place here for a bursary. So do you just want to tell us a bit about yourself and and what course you're studying at university?
2: Um, yeah I'm um, I'm uh, as you said based in Birmingham the black country. I've been um, a member of Brumbats for scarily over 15 years and uh, but I'm currently doing a PhD at the University of Wolverhampton um, looking at um, the assemblages and movements of urban bats
0: how does that link in with the symposium why have you come along to this today then
2: because a lot of the bats that i'm looking at are in um sort of woodlands in the urban fringe so like the green belt basically the what what's left of it <laughs> before it all gets gets rounded off and released um i'm looking at um the bat assemblages of urban woodlands um and whether and how easily they are crossing things like the m6 and m5 different different parts of the conurbation
0: and is that the the main part of your PhD? Is that just one very small part of it?
2: Well, there's three bits. One is the assemblages and how much maybe the biometrics vary from from, re- from area to area. Another is looking at specifically at dolbentons and how they're using canals to get through and over the uh, the motorway barriers. And uh, another is going to be looking at relatedness. So um, we're um, taking oral swabs and looking at DNA um, and comparing whether whether certain species are more uh, genetically isolated than others because of the urban barriers
0: great stuff so we've come we're just about to come to the end of the first day and it's a two-day conference what were you hoping to learn at the start of the conference
2: well i kind of have different things out of both days really so um today's one i was really looking forward to um to um the the one about uh modifying acoustic lures because obviously a huge part of my research is based on whether i actually catch bats and whether i catch the species that specifically that i'm after so um that was that was really interesting and then tomorrow, I'm really interested in looking at the uh, the veteran tree stuff, but also the climate change stuff.
0: So, so what have you? What, what was the most interesting thing from today? Then, what what have you? Which talk have you absorbed the most info from?
2: Definitely, um, uh, uh, David Hill's talk about the the laws, Um That was I found it really interesting, like looking at looking at the different graphs. And, and, and shame on me, I haven't quite read that that part of British Island bats yet. So <laughs> I was sitting on my desktop, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is familiar. And I looked at that, and yeah, it's it's um. It's fascinating just how like the different different species are will react. So, like the brown long-eared bats seem to be really like predominantly attracted to their own calls, whereas some other species are a lot more catholic about what they're what they're attracted to. Interesting.
0: Christoph, so what would you say to people mm-hmm. who are, are thinking about coming on to a bat conservation trust conference but have never been to one before?
2: Oh, I think just dive in. I think that's uh, like I went to national bat conference in two thousand and four. And um, having not knowing nothing about bats at all, I'd just taken on a job for the Wildlife Trust. Um, and I got taken to I got sent <laughs> sent off to uh to, to National Bat Conference and, and then just came back completely hooked. You great. know, I the, the, mm-hmm. the, the think it's a passion of people, and the kind of the, and everyone is so nice, and everyone knows each other and respects each other so much. And it's just such a great opportunity to network and meet people and learn stuff. And
0: it's great, great stuff. Morgan Hughes, thank you very much. Vicky Bengtson has been artificially veteranising trees in a number of countries, including England, Sweden and Norway. And in this next segment, she explains why and gives us the results of her extensive research. So, Vicky, you've just given a talk at the second day of the the Woodland Symposium being organised by BCT. Do you just want to introduce yourself to the listeners?
3: Um, I'm an ecologist and I have worked for about 30 years with nature conservation and I've got a particular interest in um, old trees, veteran trees, ancient trees, wood pastures and I now uh, live in Sweden and I still work in the UK a bit.
0: So before we get on to the the talk that you've just done and the veteranisation techniques that you're using, how would veteranisation of trees naturally happen out out in the countryside?
3: Well, trees age. And as they age, fungi play a greater part in the process. So, uh, for example, heartwood decay is one of the most important and valuable habitats that our old trees have. And we don't fully understand the mechanisms by which that happens. But we think that as well, as the trees age, the heartwood is no longer functioning And fungi then take advantage of that and decay it. And the same happens if you've got a dead branch, for example. uh, Fungi will decay the wood that's no longer functional. And that process creates all the things we're interested in uh, for all sorts of species that live on or in and with old trees.
0: And I guess it depends on the tree species. But roughly, how long does that process take in a tree's life to become a veteran tree?
3: (laughs) There's actually a really good paper about oak, uh, whereby they've shown at 200 years, 50% of oaks have some kind of cavity. At 300 years, 100% of the oaks have cavities. Uh, But I don't know of any other studies that show of other tree species. But my guess would be that birch, obviously, it happens much earlier in the process. We know with alder, for example, they develop cavities at a relatively young age and it's often overlooked as a tree species that's got interesting cavities. Um, And then pine, you know, gild, your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) So it, it varies a lot, really. And I don't know if we've got information about it either, really, to be honest.
0: So, what are the techniques that you guys have been using to to artificially create veteranization?
3: well i've talked in my talk i've talked about five different techniques that we've used in a big trail but uh I have a menu which is more like fifteen different techniques, more or less different, creating lightning strikes, creating kind of slits if you like in the tree um, topping them you know um fracturing branches doing flush cuts and that one's one that people absolutely think is awful given that in the kind of 70s and 80s it was the it was the way to do tree surgery and became absolutely not the way to do tree surgery but actually we've got really good data on flush cuts developing decay so it's a it's a brilliant technique to use um, but creating cavities I think is the one that's been most interesting to me and we um I think that's what's providing us with the the best outcome as well I suppose and the cavities are the things that also take the longest time to to create
0: so I mean why it why is, what's where's the need for this come from what's the advantage of doing these artificial techniques
3: well where do you start I mean for the last what 200 years we've created a landscape that's pretty intensive in agriculture forestry and our natural habitats have reduced and reduced and reduced so they're now fragmented in small isolated pockets We've often got, you know, wood pastures that are either overgrown or are very few old trees left. And it seems to me like it's a no brainer. We need to do something. If we do nothing, we know what's going to happen. We're going to lose species as those old trees die. And we have to wait two, three hundred years, as I've said with oak, that it takes for those cavities to form. And if you've got an age gap, then we can't afford to wait. So I would say that it's an, an essential additional tool in our nature conservation management toolbox to help us bridge some of those gaps that we've created due to the use of our landscape over the last 150 years and that we should use the resources available to us so the example that I gave in my talk was when you've got an old tree say that's three four hundred years old that's got overgrown because of lack of grazing and you've got trees that are say 50 to 70 years old that you would want to remove anyway to create more light for that old tree. Well, instead of removing the trees, if we damage them a bit instead, they won't compete quite as strongly with the old trees. So you, so you do that. Plus, potentially and hopefully, we'll also create some habitats that you otherwise find in the old trees in a younger tree. So that's the whole, you know, the whole idea really.
0: So just before we get onto the results, whereabouts have you been trialling this then?
3: Well, yeah. Um, I started with it at Hatfield Forest, uh, National Trust site in, in Essex. And I know that there's been some done at Windsor and Lynn Boddy's been doing some of her work at Windsor and at Savanac. Uh, Burner Beaches have done some, but the big trial that we've done is in Sweden, Norway and in England. We've got three sites in England, one in Norway and 16 in Sweden. So mostly, um, I think that I know of anyway, has been in England and in Sweden, where it's really taken off. But in Lithuania, they've been doing some work for the hermit beetle species. And in Italy, they've done some work on red oak, which is an invasive species. So they've been veteranising those trees as an alternative to removing them. And in Australia, they've been doing some work on veteranisation as well. But me, I've been, I think, limited, if you like, to to England, Sweden and Norway.
0: I mean, I feel like that's quite enough, is it? <laughs> and, and gotten that. So, has it been successful? You know, what have, what have the results shown? Does it work?
3: The short answer to that is yes. Um, I think, as I said also in my talk, that I've had, you know, someone sitting on my shoulder saying, are these just really expensive bird boxes? You know, and I think it's a very fair question, but I think I feel confident now that we're on the right track, that we, the work we're doing is mimicking natural cavities because we understand tree physiology. So we understand that it's about creating dysfunction in the tree that then allows the fungi to do what they need to do, which in turn then allows other species to come in. So the evidence we've got from looking at the trees after eight years gives me a pretty strong steer that we're on the right track. I mean, firstly, we've had 70% of the cavities we've created have had birds nesting in and um, they leave in turn bird nesting material, dead birds, eggshells. And we know that that attracts other species. Then we've also found live bats. We've also found remains from bats. So insect remains from brown long and obviously bat droppings as well. Massively under recorded, I would think, because I'm not a bat person and we visited those trees on one occasion. So, you know, they're bound to be under recorded. Then also tree ants, which I think are are one of these kind of, you know, crucial keystone species in cavity ecology and decay processes. So the fact that we've got all of that happening gives me much more confidence in the technique and also which techniques. So the horse damage that we've created, which is the kind of exposed wood at the base of the trunk, we're getting decay happening in those. And I think that's the butt rot, if you like, that, that, we're, out, that we're after there. And that's beginning to show signs of that happening. And then the, the cavities that we've created are actually showing also that they're being used by the species that are of interest to us. So, yes, yes. I think some of the other techniques where we've been like ring barking branches for example I don't think I would continue with because we looked at the trees the control trees and they are creating dead branches of the same size in the same time frame so but that's useful knowledge as well so I think that's what I would say that the we we now can kind of narrow in a little bit more into which of the techniques are giving us the results that we want or alternatively that help us understand which techniques to choose depending on what our target groups are
0: i found it quite interesting looking at the photos that you had was that when they're quite fresh cuts it's quite they're quite some people would say quite ugly you know you've got fresh chainsaw marks but actually it didn't take many years for the tree to naturally Um, heal and sort of smooth things over did it
3: (laughs) It's amazing, actually. I mean, trees don't heal in that sense, but they do respond amazingly well. And because we're working with young trees, that's particularly obvious. And I think what was very interesting is the the nest boxes that we did in this trial in 2012. They looked like letter boxes when we were finished, and as you say, they kind of looked a bit odd. But now, when when you go, I mean, people don't see them. You know, I walk around with people, and I'm like, Look, that tree's done, that tree's done, that. Can you not see that cavity? And it's only like, oh yeah. Oh, you know, so that's the other thing that's a real benefit in that it makes it easier to, if you like, sell it in to people who may not be professionals working with this, but even professionals, actually. But, you know, it's a it's a good way to show, well, actually, if you do this carefully, it looks very much like a natural feature. I mean, particularly the woodpecker holes. I defy anyone to come and look at some of those trees with me who don't know to say that's done with a chainsaw because it's hard enough for me and I know which trees have been done and they've got tags on and I've taken photographs before, you know. So I think it's a it's a real positive outcome.
0: And for anyone who's worried, you did this to a vast number of trees and you only had a very small percentage of them actually died, didn't you? It was, it was less than 2% of the trees that actually yeah. died from it.
3: And that was a real surprise to me, actually, to be honest, because I thought even... Some of the control trees would have died in that time because, you know, we've got very little data on tree mortality of oak in more like wood pasture situations. We've got good forestry data, but not good data on trees in wood pasture situations. So I expected more trees to have died than that, to be honest, even if a couple, I mean, a couple of them are, are not, none of them are control trees, which is interesting in its own right. Uh, all of them are trees that we treated, but some of them are trees where we've just ring barked the branch. So I don't really think that has anything to do with the treatment that we did. So, um, yeah, a few trees. And that was the idea. I hope that they wouldn't die. <laughs> I expect some to, obviously, but uh, of other reasons. But, um, yeah.
0: So, Vicky, if people want to find out more about your work, where's the best place for them to go?
3: Sadly enough, that's a bit more tricky because um, I've been a bit rubbish at <laughs> publishing stuff um because you know I've got a day job and I hope next year that we'll get something out, you know, a, a full publication on the results that we've done. But I did write an article on in conservation land management in 2015 which outlined all the techniques, that, the menu that I mentioned. And I hope next year to to do something more. But we have got a paper being published about the fungi data that I talked about too, which is in press actually. So that'll be out soon. Um, If you go to the VETSERT website, there's a nice little film there about veteranisation.
0: Vicky, thank you very much. Thank you. And in the next series of Bat Chat, we'll be revisiting the work of Jim Mulholland when I'll be joining him out in the field, observing some of those techniques that Vicky just described taking place. Rob Coventry is the Forestry Commission's Woodland Resilience Officer. And here we discuss the potential future outcomes of ash dieback in the UK and what it might mean for bats. So we're just in the lunch break of the second day of the Woodland Symposium, and Rob Coventry's kindly joined me. Rob, do you just want to introduce yourself to the listeners and what your job title is and what you actually do for for the day job?
4: Yeah, hi Steve, thanks. Um, so uh, my my job title's uh, Woodland Resilience Officer. Uh, it's a new post created by the Forestry Commission a couple of years ago, um, and the kind of the main brief is to help the the, the Woodland sector respond to ash dieback and uh, and increase the the resilience of their woodlands kind of simultaneously um, primarily in the southeast of england that's my patch but um, i also feed into international national guidance and, and policy on on those sort of topics
0: so your talk was on on the ash dieback the Kalara, um pandemic if you like that we're seeing in the uk at the moment can you just give give us a, a crash course if there's such a thing in ash dieback what is it how it arrived what the known spread is so far
4: Sure. Um, so it was first found in the UK in 2012, um, and um, but su- subsequently we've we've worked out that it was here since at least 2005, and, and probably much earlier. Um, it was first discovered in Europe in 2006, I think it was, or at least the mid 2000s, and there they've worked out it's been there since since the early 1990s at least. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an invasive fungal pathogen uh, that's originated from East Asia, um, where it kind of uh, lives on the Fraxinus, on the uh, so the ash species over there. Um, and it, it causes them a lot less, less damage over there, actually. So um, anyway, it, it, it's moved around on, on wind-blown spore masses. It overwinters in the leaf litter of the ash and the fruits from there, and then it moves on the wind either to, the, to infect the foliage above um, uh, uh, where the cycle then kind of continues or it can, can blow a bit further on the wind. Um, so the idea is that it arrived here, it actually arrived here both on imported planting stock. Um, so there were some isolated outbreaks uh, in, in different parts of the country, um, but also um, most likely on wind blown spore masses across, across from the continent as well, which um, would have hit particularly the southeast first. Um, and East Anglia, and that's why the disease has been slightly um, more more progressed in those areas.
0: So, can you describe the likely effects of cholera or ash dieback in the future? What What do you think our landscapes will look like? Have we got any idea of that?
4: Um, yeah, well, I mean, no one no one's entirely certain exactly how it will play out in in UK conditions. Um, we've we've taken a bit of a you know we can take advice from Europe where they're a few year, years ahead of us. Um, it's kind of anecdotal evidence suggests there's a 10-year lag period um, between early signs of infection and widespread mortality and so as I said in the southeast we're we're kind of well past that already and we're seeing this widespread mortality other parts of the parts of the country maybe a few years behind but it can pick up quite quickly um, so I do think right now is uh, certainly the southeast it's a sub-southwest it's starting to to hit uh, that area a lot a lot harder and I think other parts of the country too and that will continue kind of north and, and west um, in terms of the kind of local the more local impact, I think that varies depending on the on the landscape setting and the density of ash so um, uh, the, the worst impacts are likely to be in ash dense woodlands. Where conditions are really good for the fungus, and it can really it can build up that kind of um, that uh, kind of um, volumes of sporulating material in the leaf litter. Um, There, yeah, the the mortality levels are going to be going to be quite high. Um, It's again, it's very difficult to predict what they will be. Um, Outside of woodlands, and especially farther further away from higher densities of ash. Um, the the trees may still uh show some signs of infection, but there is a possibility that they will um uh they will kind of survive indefinitely and tolerate the disease because it's it's kind of a um it, it, it's the compound stresses on the tree um combined with the the, the kind of uh, the, the the pressure from the fungus and outside of woodlands um that 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 pressure will be will be dramatically less. Um overall, um, Richard Bugs, who's, who's done a lot of work on, on the genetics of, of the disease and uh, of ash um, at Q and the Queen Mary, I think it is, he's suggested that it, it's likely that we will lose 50% of our ash trees, um, which is obviously a very high amount, but he, he can't confidently say say more than that
0: from where i am in derbyshire quite a lot of some of the the important bat habitats are are within ash woodlands particularly up in the pea district where we've got lots of underground sites which we know are used by mating bats for autumn swarming they all occur these all these mines and cave sites are often on steep wooded valleys which you know since the mining activity has ceased have become predominantly ash woodlands do we have any idea? Do you think of of what the impact will be for those woodlands? I mean, you've sort of touched on it there and said we think that the where you've got heavily dense ash woodlands, they're going to be the worst affected. Do we think whether do we have any idea whether if those ash trees die back, whether other species will take their place, or do we think those landscapes are just going to become decimated?
4: Um, yeah, that's a good question. And I think a lot depends on the local setting, the density of ash in proportion to other species and the management that's, um, that's kind of delivered there. So, um, as you say, um, yeah, they're, they're ash dense woodlands, and they're in kind of deep, moist valleys often. Um, And I'm afraid to say that that is, um, you know, based on the kind of the limited advice and and evidence that's out there, they are highly susceptible to to the disease. Um, So it's quite likely that, you know, over a number of years, much of the ash in those woodlands will be lost. Um, As for what returns, well, obviously, so, I mean, there are some, there's some ups and downs of management in terms of how it affects bat habitat um, but one thing management can do, if removing those trees or beginning the process of removing those trees um, uh, before uh, before the the entire stand collapses, it can ensure you know some canopy is, it, 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 or, or trees are restocked, and, and we can retain some level of canopy um, as much as possible uh, in the situation. But um, yeah, and I think natural, of course, natural rege- regeneration, both from ash and from other species, would be an ideal scenario in in many settings, uh, many sort of conservation orientated um, for management objectives. Um, the the that I think that's that's a really uh, in terms of maintaining ash in the landscape, that is a really important. Um, Kind of approach to conservation: retaining tree, any trees that show signs of tolerance, and then the, the difficult bit: cultivating natural regeneration from them, um, but also from other species that are around that, that may replace replace ash. But that you know, ash tends to be on quite rich, like quite rich sites, and they're some of the more challenging ones for for for, for kind of actively cultivating natural regeneration on. Um, and also we, we have such high deer levels that they really inhibit inhibit natural regeneration and, and the kind of adaptive processes that come with it. Um, unfortunately. So managing deer in, in these woodlands is going to be really crucial for, for their ongoing uh, kind of um, maintenance of the woodland cover.
0: So, like you said, sounds like management is the key thing here. Is there information out there for landowners to to get this sort of information so they can start that management planning and process now?
4: Uh, yeah, there's there's a proliferation almost of ash dieback guidance. Um, uh, certainly, I'm I'm more familiar with the Forestry Commission stuff. Obviously, um, you can get that on uh, gov.uk. So there's a there's there's three Forestry Commission operations notes on gov.uk. Um, which look at uh, managing woodlands affected by ash dieback, managing non-woodland trees, um, and, uh, and then restocking woodlands. They're the three operations notes. So they're our kind of core guidance. Um, there's, uh, we have a, a, a kind of a, a more easy reading note, which signposts to various organisations uh, and, and guidance, which is relevant to, to landowners and managers. And that's on the Forest Research website. Also on the Forest Research website is a really good Kalara manual. It's called, um, and that's got an abundance of information on managing ash in different settings, and of course the research that's been going on uh, on ash. It links through to that. Um, in terms of case, there's 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 a, a case study document produced by the RFS and the Forestry Commission. That's on the RFS website, and that's called Managing Ash Dieback Case Studies. I think, um, and that that shows some examples of different approaches. Um, that case studies where, where owners have, have actually, you know, been undertaking management. Oh, another one, there's, there's a great um, forestry commission and natural England document on managing ash and triple SIs. Um, that's probably quite a useful one where conservation is a key objective. Um, and then there's some other useful bits and bobs from the tree council um, and the Arboricultural Association and, and things like that for more sort of specific areas.
0: So all these all these different documents just mentioned there, you know, we we never had anything like that for for Dutch elm disease. Is is this a a reaction of that that disease from Dutch elm disease? Have we learned lessons from there, or is it just because technology has caught up and and we're able to to get all this information out there sooner?
4: I mean, I think we did learn some lessons from the Dutch elm disease. Actually, when I started this job, I was looking into some of the Forest Forestry Commission reports on lessons learned from the Dutch elm disease response. But I think probably now we have a, a, a I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure how big a component in the landscape elm was, whether it was as big as ash. I suspect it probably was actually, but ash is obviously a huge proportion of, I think it's 12% of our broadleaf woodland or something like that, and a similar proportion of non-woodland trees. Um, so it's absolutely huge kind of impact. Um, I think now we probably have a more of an understanding of um the ecological complexity of, of different species and and the implications that losing one of them might have on a whole array of aspects of ecosystem functioning um, and uh, and biodiversity. Um, so certainly, a lot of the research effort has gone into understanding uh, the implicate the ecological implications of, of losing ash, as well as uh, as well of course of how to um, how to preserve it um, and how how to uh, develop a breeding program.
0: Great stuff. Rob Coventry, thank you very much.
4: Pleasure.
0: I've just been joined by Aleri Kent, uh, who's had a bursary to attend this two-day woodland symposium. So, Aleri, do you want to introduce yourself and um, just tell us about the course you're studying at, and at which uni? Yeah,
5: hi. Uh, I'm, I'm doing a PhD in sterling at the moment, which is, I've just started a couple months ago, and I'm going to be researching how landscape context affects woodland use by bats. And the aim is that hopefully the kind of knowledge we get from that can then help um, inform the best places to put sort of reforestation projects.
0: Are you looking at lots of different bat species or just focusing on, on one or two? Uh,
5: we're going to be looking at uh, most lots of them. Um, I think put, the main project we're going to do is put um, with passive detectors, put out um, and sort of see what bats we get in different forests. So we're probably going to get mostly data from paper trials, but we hopefully we'll get data from some other ones as well and get to look at them as well.
0: So what, so what is it that made you want to come along to this symposium then?
5: Yeah it's closely related to the project I'm doing like it's about bats and woodlands so it's pretty close to what I'm doing and it's just really cool to see what other people are doing on similar topics, get an idea of what's going on. You know, um, there were some talks yesterday about um, big passive um, bat monitoring projects as well which were really interesting to hear about and see what they're doing and kind of pick up tips from people as well about how they're managing their data and stuff like that it's been really cool
0: and was there anything you were hoping to learn at the start of the conference in particular
5: i think just kind of getting an idea because i've only just started the phd i'm kind of still getting an idea of what what we already know what we need to find out i think i was mostly just kind of get looking to get an overview but it's been i've learned a lot already so it's really cool
0: so which talk so far have you found the most useful or have you absorbed the most information from?
5: The one I found most useful was Sonia's, um, Sonia Ravory, who was talking about the, a big project they did uh, with the public forest estate down in the southwest, which was looking at using path monitoring and seeing what bats they had in different woodlands and um, kind of how which species that were really good to pick up. And I think... There was some really interesting stuff about there as well about what AI can do now with that data. Like, I was so, so surprised. She's like, Yeah, we had something like five terabytes of data, which was slightly terrifying given that I'm doing a similar project, like, <laughs> hoping to do a similar project soon. Um, but she's like, Yeah, and then we just fed it through some AI and they sort of sorted it out for us a bit. And I was like, Oh, cool. I didn't know that it, we had like machine learning stuff that could do things that cooler yet. Yeah. So that was really interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you'll definitely need a big hard drive to store all your data. Yes. And I'm telling you now. <laughs> And what would you say to people who have never been to a Bat Conservation Trust conference before and are uh, thinking about dipping their toes in? What would you say to them if they're thinking about doing that?
5: I think definitely go for it. Like it's really interesting. I've learned so much, uh, and it's it's a really nice range as well of some academic people um, who are doing more sort of focused research and just people who are interested and sort of have their, so they have their own perspective as well so sort of you know i'm thinking about it from the science and then some people are like well how can i help this back roost in my area kind of thing and it's just like that range of perspectives i think really gives it a lot it like brings up lots of interesting issues and there's lots of interesting back and forth between sort of the research and the more practical side of it And i really enjoyed that part of
0: it great stuff well best of luck with the phd Larry, and we'll look forward to seeing how it goes My thanks to George, Morgan, Vicky, Rob and Alari for taking time out of the symposium to make those recordings with me. The links to the various topics discussed are in the show notes. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Bat Chat. We'll be back in two weeks' time for our final episode of this second series, talking about bats and churches. Catch you then. What did you think of this episode? If you can please leave a quick comment about the show in the ratings and review section, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other listeners to discover our podcast.